I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing persuasion, on which we are answering your questions about persuasion. That's right. It is a Q&A episode. Uh, there were 50 plus comments, I guess, just on the, the thread over on Substack. So uh, lots of cues. That's, that's great. Lots of cues. Um, we have not actually recorded together in uh, some time because just schedules and all that. Normally, we would record ahead of time, but we're recording this on the 30th today, on the day that this episode is supposed to go up. That is not our our, our typical plan. It is not our desired plan, but you know, so it goes. Uh, we just felt like we uh, we wanted Logan to to really uh, earn his keep. Uh, Work hard. Thanks, Logan. Week. Yeah, you're the yeah. best. We all adore you. We all adore the best. you. We all adore you're you. You're the best. Yeah. Sorry for putting you, uh, you know, up against a deadline like this. But how's it going, Heidi? How how's it going? I heard your dog bark in the background. You went on yeah. mute, so I figured I'd ask you first. So we haven't Thank recorded you. in I about ten days. So how's it going? We all <laughs> forgot our professional responsibilities. <laughs> um, I am doing great. I just got back from the Saint Amelia's Homeschool Conference in oh, yeah. Austin, oh, right. Texas. Yep. And that was just delightful. I love meeting like-minded kindred spirits at these conferences. Um, I'm, so I'm real tired. I'm tired today because so many good conversations and so many, um, like just so many good contemplations, but glad to be back in the saddle. Sean, how are you feeling while being back in the saddle? I feel like I, I'm a little bow-legged. <laughs> I don't know. No, feel great. Well, then you should be good to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I haven't had I haven't had any exciting trips or anything, so I've just been waiting around for you guys, and so this is really magical. And this, and this baby too. Yeah, I'm waiting yeah. around for that guy too. Two yeah. more weeks. Yeah, so no action on that front, but it's coming up. What was the name yeah, we were right. saying that Tim and Galen should name? Carl, I think. Carl, it was. that's right. Yeah, 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 and and Tim definitely believes that this baby is a girl so much so that I, and they're being surprised and so much so that i actually bought like a girl outfit oh wow to give him as a gift and then returned it because i'm like i actually don't know you don't know yeah <laughs> but i believe it <laughs> i believe that this is a girl baby but he has oh. more more of a neutral coming at him this weekend that's right we're gonna have a little uh planning Gonna be at Goldberry Books and little hangout. Yeah. Good food, good conversation. Wish y'all could be we, there. We gotta get in the uh get in some uh some team building time before these babies come this spring. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. So yeah, maybe we could arrange some sort of uh marriage contract between our children and oh. get that nailed down right now. I really like that idea, except I'm yeah. probably out of this loop, but well, yeah, your child I, your yeah. children are a little older. A little older. Yeah. 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 And it would have to be open ended in case it turns out that Tim has a boy and not a girl. It would be mm. weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's true because he's not communicating. Wait, do they not know or are they just not communicating? They don't know. Okay. Yeah, okay. this is a surprise. That's better. For if they everybody. knew but weren't telling people the gender, that seems you know cagey. What? I like, agree. Kind of yeah. like people it's one who thing won't you... tell people their babies' names. Yeah, but that's until one thing. But they that's don't even thing. they don't have Sean. a name technically, right? So it's different. They Sean have. has a policy when they don't share their name and then people feel left out and they have FOMO. But these are abstract people, not me. <laughs> right. Listen, at this point, I don't even know the baby's name. I'm telling you, we're we're cutting it close. Have you tried Carl? Carl is available. 
Is it a good, strong one? Germanic name? <laughs> <laughs> and then if if Tim and Galen name their baby Carly or Carla, assuming oh, yeah. it's a girl, then Carl and Carly be fine. Be good to go. That's adorbs. Okay, speaking of uh, future romances, last week we ended the show by saying that the, the question of the the week was about love letters. So aside from the future love letters that Carla and Carly are going to send to each other, Man. Carly, Carl and Carly are going to send to each other, we put it out there, what are the greatest love letters in fiction? Of course, referring to Wentworth's at the end of Persuasion, which Heidi made the claim is the greatest love letter in fiction. Heidi, the big, the big question that came up in that thread there is, what are the second and third runners-up in your mind? Because there, a lot of people were really struggling to come up with anything that that really compares in yeah. terms of fiction. You know, there's a lot of love letters in history or, or letter collections or, or, you know, in memoirs and things like that, but in terms of actual fiction. So then what are the second and third in your mind? It's true. Yeah. So I ended up, I went and looked it up expecting to have like dozens and dozens. I had a couple in mind and I'll tell you, and it, you're right. It turns out that there's fewer than, especially that aren't in translation, which we ended up saying that you could. So we probably might could have opened it up to just like love letters from like in the world of literature right? Yeah, uh, yeah. and gotten more responses to that um, because so many authors write like a beautiful love letters. I have a book of like author love letters just like written by historical and, and literary figures in history. And I just like love that. Um, yeah. But the ones that I had in mind were one of them was mentioned one by Haley and that is oh, the, the Anna Karenina one. T- yep. The one from yeah. Anna Karenina, which is essentially is that just a letter. Them. I, it was, it is in it's my letters. It might not count, but that's what I had in mind. <laughs> it's worth mentioning. Between Kitty it's, still, and it's a great, it's a great moment. Like tapping yeah. out, oh, yeah. uh, like, like coded messages of love yeah. to each other on a table. Love that. And then the other one that I had in mind is actually bad and, pretty wicked but it's the um but really beautifully written and that's from dangerous liaisons which is a translation Mm. from the french and it's an epistolary novel and they write back and forth these like passionate love letters um and it is an adulterous couple so i absolutely do not recommend the method by which this these love letters go back and forth but they are very very like writing you don't you don't admire writing the method of falling in love. Oh, oh two, I see. Okay, you know, I see. Between the context, the context yes, in which the letters were exchanged, what I should have said. not, not the, method. the method. That's the yeah. wrong word. Yeah, but yes, but I actually can't recommend the method in that context either. But <laughs> yeah. you were right. fair enough. Fair enough. So, but they're so beautiful. The dangerous liaison letters, um, bad but beautiful. <laughs> okay, so beautiful. that was last week's question of the week. And that brings us to a whole episode of questions. Of course, we're here to discuss the questions related to persuasion. And like I said, we've got a bunch. Um, let's um, let's start with this one from Zena, who asks, um, what do you think the ideal reading order of Jane Austen's novel is? Novels is. I, I, I actually screwed that up. She said, what is the ideal reading order of Jane Austen's novels? And for the sake of my sentence that I was trying to rearrange the verbs, but then I didn't want it to seem like she doesn't know how to use she grammar. She did a great so job. She did yeah. fine. I screwed it up trying to fix it for no apparent reason. Uh, Heidi, what do you think? Okay, let's do it this way. 
What would you read first? Don't just like give us your individual orders. I want to know if there's a difference in what you would do and what you would do first. Sean, you do go first, actually. Because I asked how you did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think in a lot of ways, uh, this has settled itself uh, over time. (laughs) And most people's entry point is Pride and Prejudice, and it's probably a good one. Uh, But uh, you could try and do sort of chronological uh which would which, still be pride and prejudice right or yeah although uh northanger abbey she sort of started and abandoned and then finished later uh so you could go that route then there's yeah publication order uh i would say pride and prejudice or maybe northanger abbey and then you kind of work your way from there what, what would you read last uh mansfield park mansfield park interesting yeah. okay Heidi, what would you what would you say? I think that's right. I think you could also make a case for Emma, but mm, I think Pride mm-hmm. and Prejudice is probably the the gateway drug to Austin, which is yeah. the gateway drug for many of us into <laughs> literature. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, but I definitely I don't think there's a wrong way. I wouldn't start with Mansfield Park because it's the hardest one. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hardest so one to like. Have hardest any of you like. read the Lady Susan book that I never have? Like eighteen seventy. Oh yeah. Yeah, I, I'm sure Sean I, has. I've never read it. Yeah, in fact, you could even read like her juvenilia. You could read the stuff that she wrote as a like as love a and friendship, twelve year old. Yeah, love and friendship and uh, her history of the British monarchs and uh, this. It's all you know, precocious and and pretty entertaining. But uh, it might and, you might enjoy it more if you already have an appreciation uh, or affection for her. What about Sanderson? <laughs> I mean, it's it's more. As somebody finished it, and uh, a lady, you know, came along after Austin's death and finished the novel, and it's okay, but uh, it's kind of, it's kind of disappointing because you see where it could go, and then obviously Austin isn't around to finish it. It's kind of like reading Go Set a Watchman. Like, it's better if you just pretend it doesn't exist. I agree. Okay, so I want to do a classic exercise here that you guys are going to hate. Um, let's yeah. say let's say there's six, the six main. Jane Austen novels, right? Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion. So I just listed those. I, I kept, I left out Lady Susan, but I, I listed those in publication order. So, uh, Sean, pick a number between one and a hundred. Okay. No, say it out loud. <laughs> 77. Heidi? 76. Come on. Oh, okay. Heidi wins. It was 13. Uh, One of those in every group. Man. Okay. So Heidi, you choose whether you want to go first or second. First. Okay. You don't even know what you're choosing. How do you know? Exactly. Okay. So here's what you're going to do. We're going to, you're going to, you're going to get to have, you each get to claim three Jane Austen novels. So it's going to be like a Jane Austen novel draft. And then what we're going to do is we're going to put it out there and say, which of you have the stronger Oh, roster. I would love to know how that shakes out. Like, how will people vote on this? That's why so, I picked first. Okay, I know so it'll be something like this: Sense yeah. and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion. So, Heidi, you get to pick first, but here's the twist: Sean then gets to pick two. Yeah, and then you'll get to pick two, and then Sean will get to pick two, and then you, so we'll, so on and so forth. All so, right. like a little snake. Okay, so Heidi, what are you choosing? Pride and Prejudice. Okay. All right, so she yeah. she she changed right. Pride and Prejudice. The only thing, they, the only question was, was she going to choose Persuasion because of her personal love for right. it? Mm-hmm. So, right. Okay, so Sean, then that leaves you get to choose two. Then, so with yeah. Sense and Sensibility, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion available, what are you choosing? 
This is actually where it gets a little bit more interesting. I get to take, I did two. You choose two now. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm also sort of playing Heidi because I'm trying to decide of the two that I leave, which one would she pick? Right. Hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. partly, but what you're really thinking here is like, what is the audience going to think is the best list? Listen, hey, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) I can be alone in my principles. You can take that approach. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But secretly, it will matter a lot to me. Uh, <laughs> I'm cho- I'm going to take Mansfield like Park and Persuasion. Mansfield Park and Persuasion. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. That, Heidi, now you get two, but these will be your last. Those are yeah. the Steve Kerr two. and Scotty Pippen. So yeah. then you're going to get whatever you don't choose, Sean is going to have. So right. you have Pride and, Pre- Pride and Prejudice. He has mm-hmm. Mansfield Park and Persuasion. So what are you leaving for Sean is the big question. I am going to take Sense and Sensibility and Emma. Okay. And he gets Northanger Abbey. Yeah. See, okay, so then your little roster of Pride and Prejudice novels is Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, and Emma. And his is Mansfield Park, Persuasion, and Northanger Abbey. I'm not sorry. So this is, okay, so defend, defend yourself because it sounds like you're going to get... <laughs> I mean, you are going to get slaughtered, <laughs> but I, yeah, well, I yeah, admire I'm, your... The more yeah. literary group. So yeah, there's right. going to be a strong you're gonna get the yeah. stronger literary vote. Yeah, that's right. And I and I I'm partly uh I'm I'm glad I got the stronger clergyman. Oh, but that's a two, really man, two of my, strong argument. You'll get the two of my novels get, get solid, solid clergyman folks. characters. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I'm gonna have to put this as a poll somewhere, um, yeah. or just leave a comment in the in the comments of this section and tell us what yeah. you think. You know, I'll uh, even this. We've there's been there was talk about the best uh, Austin men too, and I gotta put another plug in for Henry Tilney. I was thinking about him recently uh, because of all the men in several of the novels, you have men who are who end up standing up to uh, family members. Mister Darcy of. Defying Lady Catherine is maybe one of the 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 better ones, but Henry Tilney has to uh, cross his own father for the dignity of the woman that he loves, and that's that's not easy to do. I think he's a he's a good guy. So there's an act. There's a question somewhere in here, I believe, about the question of clergy in this book. So if one oh, of you yeah. wants to just kind of vamp for a minute <laughs> until I can find it. I was searching there. You almost gave me yeah. enough time. Um, no, I is it uh is it Nathan? Uh it seems to me that in most of Austin's other works, the role of the church in British life British life is often at the center. Yeah, Here we yeah, don't really spend any significant time with any clergy as major or even minor characters. Is there any significance in the general absence there of the is, clergy yeah. from this story? Yeah, I had I had been thinking about this question. Heidi, do you have any thoughts on this one? Thanks for finding I that. Very, I think it's a good question. I'd not even noticed that. I, well, I don't know if I hadn't noticed it, but I hadn't necessarily attached any significance to it. I think it's really important for our dutiful, quiet, uh, morally centered. Uh, heroine to have a dashing hero versus the more settling, you know, presence of a clergyman yeah. as her leading man. Yeah. Um, and this does seem to be a work with a bit more social 
uh, ambiguity that doesn't seem to need that clergyman center uh, centering presence, especially since it takes place more in the cities than in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that's all there is to it. So, Sean, any other thoughts or comments on that? I was thinking along Good the question. same lines that the clergy, uh, the path to the clergy for Austin's uh, likable clergyman is one is duty driven, uh, but it's also a, a really safe path. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the path of the second son uh, or, uh, you know, the person who just is looking for a reliable living so he can take care of the woman that he loves. Uh, but this is the this is the novel of risks and wagers and uh, mm. the na- it's it's her it's the novel of the Navy. Right? The, the clergy gets its time and this is her Navy novel. And uh, and her naval hero is uh, a risk taker. And that's uh, so there's something not safe about choosing a husband like that. And that plays into the initial persuasion. I think there's uh, thematically that's that's, that's a big reason. But we do see, you know, we do get a churchman. He's just uh, and even references to people's church going habits and activities that are uh, uh, of some importance. But, yeah, it's not in the center. Her her father, Jane Austen's father, was a rector of a church, right? He was a clergyman. Is that right? Or is it was his brother, her brother? Uh, One of her brothers. Okay. Yeah, her father was a a teacher among other things. Like he boarded he boarded students and and taught boys. Nathan has another question. Um, what's the consensus of the best visual versions of this? Both the ninety five and two thousand seven versions deviate a lot. Is there something unadaptable yeah. about it? Uh, we of course uh, had a great deal of um, fun skewering uh, in our watch along uh, the the. 2022 edition uh heidi what's your answer to this like what do you think is the best one and is it just that there's something unfilmable i think that there is something that's it's that's hard to capture in this novel in a film because it's so much about Anne's interiority and that and what what we know about what she is feeling and thinking is so different from what she's showing on the outside that and that's kind of the point um and that, in general, that's why I think Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility and Emma remain the most filmable versions. It's because they they have more plot um, and they have more vivacious characters um, that are easier to portray by great actors. Um, remember the Remains of the Day movie? Like that oh, yeah. was... I think that's the very, very best uh, film that actually captures the inter that 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 that's the very best film that that does what I'm saying is hard to do, yeah. which is to capture on camera what characters who are intentionally hiding their feelings are experiencing and being able to like juxtapose their in- their internal life while also maintaining their sense of manners. I think that 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 Anthony Hopkins Emma Thompson version of of um of Remains of the Day is the only movie I've ever seen that does that really really well. Yeah. And so it, I think with persuasion it's just hard. Yeah, I think in both novels 
it's a cumulative effect of this emotional atmosphere mm-hmm. that you you feel and it accrues over the course of the novel, but it is really hard to convey on film. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The Remains of the Day does an excellent job. I haven't actually, I've seen the 2007 version of it. I haven't seen the other one. I thought it was I, good. I thought it was I good. like them. I like them both. They do a decent yeah. job, but yeah. Hannah asks, fun fantasy question. If Austin had lived another five, 10, even 15 years, how do you think her writing might have developed? What sorts of things can you imagine her moving towards or moving away from? I'll never comprehend that she wrote all these masterpieces before the age of 45. Heidi, what do you think? I don't know. I mean, like, like she says, it's a fantasy question. It's speculative. I would like to see from her more novels like, like Persuasion that um, enter into the depth of the characters instead of maybe in addition to the satire and the skewering um, and explore some of those more nuanced um, I maybe social conventions. Like even in this novel, I think that there's in, in Persuasion, one of the things that I noticed as I was reading it is that there's more forgiveness on the part of the author towards some of the foibles of the characters. Um particularly the Smiths. Um, It's very clear that they have made foolish decisions, that Mrs. Smith is reaping the consequences of her own folly as well as of her husband's. And yet um, Austin doesn't really skewer them or mock them for it in a way that she does in some of her earlier novels. Um, And so I would like to think there'd be more of that. Sean? Maybe she just gets tired of writing novels altogether. Just quits well you know that <laughs> virginia wolf's famous essay on jane austen is literally about this question it's uh-huh. true yeah um, it's true uh and no i i think that i'm i'm with heidi and that's wolf's conclusion right it seemed like she was coming to some kind of turning point uh where there was this kind of uh, the gravity of of later life working its way into her into her novels uh <clears throat> yeah, yeah, and she one of the things that Virginia Woolf writes about is that she was she writes her fame had grown very slowly. Uh, I doubt wrote Mr. Austenley uh, whether it would be possible to mention any other author of note whose personal obscurity was so complete. And then Wolf goes on, had she lived a few more years only, all that would have been altered. She would have stayed yeah. in London, dined out, lunched out, met famous people, made new friends, read, traveled and carried back to the quiet country cottage a horde of observations to feast upon at leisure. And what effect would all this have had upon the six novels that Jane Austen did not write? She would not have written of crime, of passion, or of adventure. She would not have been rushed by the importunity of publishers or the flattery of friends into slovenliness or insincerity, but she would have known more. Her sense of security would have been shaken. Her comedy would have suffered. She would have trusted less, this is already perceptible in persuasion, to dialogue and more to reflection to give us a knowledge of her characters. These marvelous, those marvelous little speeches, which sum up in a few minutes chatter, all that we need in order to know an Admiral Croft or a Mrs. Musgrave forever. That shorthanded hit or miss method, which contains chapters of analysis, analysis and psychology would have become too crude to hold all that she now perceived of the complexity of human nature. She would have devised a method clear and composed as ever, but deeper and more suggestive for conveying not only what people say, but what they leave unsaid, not only what they are, but what life is. She would have stood further away from her characters and seen them more as a group, less as individuals. 
Her satire, while it played less incessantly, would have been more stringent and severe, and she would have been the forerunner of Henry James and of Proust. But enough. Vain are these speculations. The most perfect artist among women, the writer whose books are immortal, died just as she was beginning to feel confidence in her own success. <laughs> so Wolf didn't love a lot of Austin's work, but I think that's still worth sharing. It's like a good bit of writing and it's yeah, yeah. it's speculative, but um it's fun to hear Wolf who who is was trying was aspiring to be a, an Austin in her own 20th century way, contemplating what, what that means. Austin <laughs> would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Susan wants to know, Heidi, is Lady Russell wholly superfluous in this novel? Anne doesn't need a mother figure to advise her against marrying Wentworth. A 19-year-old could easily be swayed by a father and sister, even if Anne didn't respect them then. She's missing from the middle of the novel, apart from being the object of Wentworth's dislike, a role Anne's family in general could also have filled. And then there was the pointless, unresolved tension about Anne not getting to convey her information about Elliot's character to Lady Russell, which turned out not to matter. So what role does she serve? Heidi, what do you think about this? It's a really good question. I think that my, I've never thought about this before, so it's coming right off the top of my head. Um, at the beginning of the novel, Austin takes very great pains to convince us that Anne does not end her engagement break engagement with Wentworth merely because of social pressure. Uh, but she has been convinced that it's best for Wentworth as well as best for her. And I think for that, for Austin to be able to convince us readers that, that Anne considered actually her duty for the sake of Wentworth as much as for herself, she has to give us a character that Anne respects and she also, I think, has to give us a character that Anne respects that she can resist in the end from persuasion, still respecting her. Um, the say the way that Anne resists the pressure and the attempt to persuade her to marry Mr. Elliot that that Lady Russell makes. So the fact that at the beginning of the novel, she considered it her duty to break off the engagement. And at the end, she is making a choice for her own happiness in spite of Lady Russell, a character she respects, making a case for Mr. Elliot. I think those two things together means that she had to have somebody more than just a foolish father and a selfish sister. That's my answer off the top of my head. Sean, anything to add to that? No, I think that's great. Uh, I think that the other function that Lady Russell serves is as the the sole character, at least early in the novel, who rightly esteems Anne, uh, which is helpful even in, in characterizing Anne for us, giving us someone who uh, sees her quality, uh, which <laughs> assures us uh, beyond just what the narrator uh, can assert, that she has real quality and that objectively Anne is a, a virtuous woman and she's simply overlooked by her vain uh, family members. There's a, a similar question about a different character. This is from Elizabeth. Elizabeth, And she says, what do we think about Mrs. Smith? She's so sympathetic at first, and we love Anne for remaining her friend, even when she doesn't contribute any, quote, social capital, as Sir Elliot and Elizabeth might conceive of it. But then she doesn't warn Anne what a jerk her cousin is. Are we supposed to forgive her because she keeps the secret in the hopes of improving her desperate financial situation after they're married? Or are we missing some cultural context that talking out of school would have been a much bigger deal and would have made her even less likable to readers at the time this was published? Sean, I'll let you do this one first and we'll 
We'll go. We'll do the snake again. We'll just start with you and then go back we'll to Heidi. Snake. You know, and then, Heidi, uh, and then Heidi gets two comments. <laughs> I, I, I kind of gone back and forth on this question. I think when I went back to reread that particular section, I, I think I finally decided to give Mrs. Smith a bit of a pass. Uh, she, she really, she is in a especially for her station and season in life, she's in a, in a desperate situation um, or at least a really strained situation. Uh, And because of the way, because of uh, the social norms and social dynamic of her time, uh, she does not have a lot of recourse or places to turn for the kind of assistance that she needs. Uh, And Anne is, uh, and one of her few friends in the world who is positioned to help her in that way. And so it is this, I think it's this awkward and maybe even a terrifying revelation to her when she discovers that, uh, Anne could be marrying this man who, uh, has, you know, if not ruined her, but maybe helped, helped her along to this, uh, state of semi ruination that she's in. Uh, and so I think there's just a lot of conflicted emotion in Mrs. Smith. And she tells Anne that she was on the verge of, or or still contemplating, uh, even in the face of the, the rumors about the engagement, revealing the truth about Mr. Elliot. So I don't think we can say for sure that given more time, she wouldn't have divulged this information anyway. Uh, but she she really is in and uh, you can't praise the self the instinct for self preservation but it is I think a uh, a mitigating factor I think she is in a tough position and uh, this was uh, a decision she had to make rather quickly I I give her the pass yeah I think that that is I think that the Mrs Smith relationship is just to tie this to the earlier question is evidence of Austin's um, like she becomes more forgiving towards some of the, the follies of her characters. And Austin isn't afraid to tell us exactly what she thinks and wants us to think through her characters and through the situations in her novels. Um, And they are in many ways, morality tales, right? Which is what they're later praised for by people like C.S. Lewis, right? Who says like Austin is the last great moral novelist. (laughs) Um, And, um, and so in this case, the mitigating factor is exactly what you said and also her abiding affection for Anne um, and also her need just what just exactly what you said and she she says to Anne the reason I didn't tell you is because I I have hope that maybe you could reform him yeah and that maybe he has a true affection if there's anybody who can it's you um and then she also says, I had, I need, I, I thought maybe if we remained friends and I didn't turn you off to him, then maybe you would help me later when you were married, right? Which is a bit manipulative. And yet Austin allows us to still like her, which I yeah, think she, goes, yeah, 
Go ahead. She plays she plays it as weakness, not as cruelty right. uh, or or uh, wickedness in, in an overt way. I I don't I don't respect Mrs. Smith because of what <laughs> she did. Right. I I lose some respect for her, um, but I gain some respect for Austin, allowing us to wrestle with that um, and giving us a character with some moral ambiguity that we as the reader are decided we are we get to decide what we think about that instead of just being told by the novel what to think about it um and i i like that so i think that mrs smith is one of those characters and those rare characters in austin that you are allowed as the reader to decide what you (laughs) think about her instead of being told by the novel um and i I find that a little bit more compelling and if it was you know, a book that was as long as Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice or even Emma, then probably we'd get more, we'd get more scenes with the ramifications of her choices or the fallout of that or what ends up happening to her. And that's the kind of stuff that gets, I don't want to say cut, but gets left out because the book's shorter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Radio wants to know, how does, well, actually, let me read this first part here. And then we'll do the, the question. She says, more comment than a question. I've heard this novel described as autumnal, something which has stuck with me over the years. I think autumnal captures that melancholy feeling very well. Also, given the season of the year and the time of Anne's life this takes place in. If you have any further thoughts on this, I'd love to hear them. Any thoughts on this? Does it feel like an autumnal book to you? It it does. I think Most that's definitely. right. Yeah. yeah, that's a great adjective to describe it. It is, as we've talked about a few times, it is the most melancholy of the novels and there's the most like actual grief in this novel and a sense of loss and a sense and and a real knowledge at the end that that although Wentworth and Anne have uh have been brought together and rewarded for their virtue right um and for their strength of character um but that there are actual lost years um and and that is that i think that contributes to that autumnal feeling as well as Anne's age and um and like so many comments about her looks as the subjective correlative for her inner life right you can see on the outside is what's what's going on the inside is reflected on the outside and all these things and so i think that that's a really good adjective to describe it sean what season uh does pride and prejudice belong to uh, I think Pride and Prejudice. Oh, go ahead, Heidi. Heidi, you made a face like she's got the answer. Like there's this spring, is a no brainer. Right? Well, yeah, I was gonna. Yeah. Say, that's what I was gonna say. It's spring. Everybody's young. Everybody's dancing. Everybody's falling in love. It's it's spring. There's what's, some storms along the way, right? Yep, <laughs> yeah, yep, yeah, yep. What's the Jane Austen summer book then? Is it Emma? Yeah, Maybe. I I'd say probably probably Emma. Hmm. And it's then, a very optimistic novel, Emma is. Yeah, yeah. It's Emma's a, a little it's bit an older. Trajectory the whole time. Yeah, that's right. She's older Except than some of the heroines, but you know, it's a. Uh, she's also, oh yeah, yeah. That's the summer one. What? So what's the winter book then? Uh, does she have winter books? I don't know. Sense and sensibility. She died before she could write. <laughs> Sense and sensibility is yeah. It's also autumnal in some ways, maybe, but yeah, it's the. It also could be a different version of a spring book, with people oh. getting sick in summer and spring storms and all that. Oh, yeah. What's yeah. Mansfield Park? What season Flu is Mansfield season. Park? 
Uh, I think I think Mansfield Park is somewhere between a summer and an autumn book. Late winter, early spring. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's right. Maybe that's right. It comes in like a lion. Yeah. Leaves Second like a spring. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, moving on. Uh, let's see. The, the she says on to actual questions. How does Mister Elliot compare to other Austin villains? Wickham, Willoughby, Henry Crawford. Is Austin doing anything different with him? Villain is a strong word, but we'll go with it. I think it works for Mister Elliot, though. But I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think it actually works for Willoughby, Wickham, and Elliot, um, Crop, Henry Crawford. This is why this is why Mansfield Park is nobody's Man. favorite, but it's just so hard to pin down, right? Is Crawford I, a villain? I like, will. I will not. Yeah. I will. Re- I refuse yeah. to call Henry Crawford a villain. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and because he's he's the of all the uh, ill-fated or irresponsible lovers. He's the one about whom Austin, in her narrative voice, says, "You know, uh, in no un, in no qualified way, would have been saved by, by the heroine. If yeah. if Fanny had chosen Henry Crawford, he would have he would have been a good man." Yeah. Well, when, the, when, when, the, so when, they, when she tells so us. Good. So, uh, Heidi, do you have anything? I anyway, think like how how is Elliot different from Wickham that, or Willoughby? Let's take out Crawford then. Wickham or Willoughby I, and Elliot. I think that he's not. I think that they are the same, tarred with the same brush. I I um I don't think that he would have been saved by Anne because he would have gained so much. Like if Crawford had married Fanny, he would have been making a sacrifice. And it's partly her and partly that sacrifice that could have saved him. Yeah. If Elliot married Anne, he would be rising in the world, which is his real goal. And because of that, I don't think even Anne's virtue would have rubbed off on him. He would have had to make no heroic movements, no no personal sacrifices. I think he would have remained the same kind of person if he married Anne. And therefore, I think he's just as irredeemable within the world of the novel um, as Wickham and Willoughby um, and gets his just desserts in the sense that he's blocked from ever rising socially, which is his real goal. Yeah, the the one thing I will say for him, I don't disagree with any of that. I think he is he is as detestable mm-hmm. as the other two. The one thing I will say for him is his uh though he's wickedly self-serving, his plan does not involve the ruination. True. Uh the the outright ruination of any uh innocent young girls. So True. there there is there is that. <laughs> I think that's right. In fact, that's what I've I I actually really like that because I've always wondered what the purpose of what is the name of that social climbing the, like they want to be invited to whose house in Bath the lady I can't remember oh, her name right now yeah yeah but yeah. she has a daughter mm-hmm. um, an unmarried daughter and so I remember reading Persuasion and expecting well the first time I read it I expected Mr Elliot to hook up with that girl and ruin sure. her and that that would be the exposure and that's not what happens and so it always makes so it's made me wonder over the years what's the purpose of those characters mm-hmm. and I think that maybe that's it that it's low hanging fruit that he doesn't take right but he does yeah. end up taking Miss Cl- Mrs Clay which 
the only reason that makes sense is to kind of bring poetic justice to the uh to sir walter elliot yeah in one below and i actually think that's maybe the weakest part of the whole novel is that he ends up with mrs clay well i think that it's partly that uh I think it's by design. It reveals him as a man of no imagination, right? Even oh, Mrs. Smith. That's interesting. I like Mrs. That. Smith describes him as someone who only over a long period of time comes to actually appreciate the thing that he's, he stands to inherit that he had disdained uh, for so long. And that True. now his, his only, uh, the only, <laughs> the only uh, remedy that he can conceive is uh, stealing this woman away from, Sir Elliot, uh, which is, uh, I mean, he's not That's true. wrong, but it's also kind of dumb and simplistic. Man, I'm so glad you said that. That actually really illuminates that ending for me then. I'm like, what's yeah. up with that? So thanks. <laughs> Here's one from Debbie. She says, my son just had to read this book for a required class at Hillsdale College. He hated it parenthetical although i don't think he even finished it so i told him he couldn't effectively argue from his position and parenthetical debbie goes on there are many personal reasons i think this particular kid did not like this particular book but i think a lot of it had to do with the fact that it's about the internal musings of a woman it's contemplating this in my heart when i came across this article and she then links to an article at memoria press's website called why heroines matter and you can click on the link in her comment there uh this same kid wrote his senior thesis uh, his senior high school thesis about Odysseus. So I found the comparison particularly illuminating. So I guess my question is this, do you think heroines matter in the way this author argues? Now I know we're not reading the article, but she then says, can we extrapolate, extrapolate universal human experiences from stories about women the same way we can from stories about men? But is it a moral failing? If for example, a young man cannot appreciate the value of a story about a woman, or maybe it's just Anne in particular, he did enjoy Jane Eyre. Heidi, I really love this question. I love this question a lot. So what I'm about to say has a thousand qualifiers to it um, that I will add a couple of them. One, I think, yes, it is a it's it's a failing as a reader to not be able to relate to anybody that you're reading uh, narrative voice. That's the job of a reader is to humble themselves to the to the story and to receive the story and to enter into it. Now, having said that, I will say he comes by that or any reader comes by that honestly, uh, because through either training or inclination or youth or whatever reason, right? And that's why we keep reading. (laughs) Uh, And that's why we hopefully have teachers and a community of readers that can help with that interpretive experience of the reader. And so in saying, yeah, it probably is a failure as a reader, isn't any kind of finger pointing or accusation against your son or anybody. Um, There's plenty of books like that. For me, like I never liked cowboy books until I started reading them with David, right? Is that a (laughs) failure on my part? Yes, of course it is. Because that's a really big thing. But it's also one I come by honestly and is fair considering my personality and my reading experience and the fact that I'm a woman and the fact that I hate being uncomfortable and all like, right? Um, <laughs> okay. Can I? Can I so, can, yep. Go ahead. Okay. So this is a really interesting conversation. Like I, I read the question and then I thought about myself as a college student and I don't, right. I don't think that I liked this book as a college student, the way that I, certainly the way that I did, you know, the other Austin books. Um, and it may be that 
sometimes you have to live more for lack of a better phrase to, to, to truly appreciate what a book is doing or what an author is saying or what a character is going through or however you want to say it. Um, so are you arguing that like, where does taste play into it from a moral perspective? Cause you're saying you don't love cowboy books. You didn't like them until you read them that's with right. someone who likes them, but some of that's a taste. So where is the relationship between taste I have an and moral? To okay. That. Great. Yeah. So I, I think taste is not anything. Actually, I do think taste is moral, but ta- that's something that develops, right? However, like, in other words, your taste can evolve by exa- uh, yes. Is like, that what you mean? I'm okay. actually because I'm a better person now. I'm willing to like cowboy books, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and you're and willing so, to try something you wouldn't have yes, cared for before, and willing yeah. to enter into it for the sake of another. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that yeah. is moral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, however, the when you are saying taste, like it's not immoral to like or not like something right off the bat. Like that's, but it is, it is not moral to say, because I don't like it, that means it's not good and Mm -hmm. that I shouldn't submit myself to it. Now, Mm -hmm. this is just basic, like human forgiveness to be like (laughs) an 18 year old is allowed to make the mistake of being like Jane Austen. To call it wrong. But if he's 19, well, I mean, like that's okay. (laughs) Like that's, doesn't mean he's not a good person. Right. But I also think that to her more narrow question for a man to be able to read the perspective of a woman is like very, very important. Yeah like very important (laughs) and worth fighting for and worth returning to and worth challenging. And, and same goes the other way, but that's not really a problem because the, the tradition, the literary tradition is full of stories about men as central characters. And so when like, that's not a big deal, like, um, like very few, it's becoming increasingly common for women to say things like, I don't like to read books about men and I'm sorry. Now you don't get to read hardly anything. So bummer for you. Hey, less, um, it's a, a lot of yeah. things that have been written in the last three years, but. Right. Yeah, and, well, yeah. but, so the challenge for young women is to avoid the trap of mere feminist reading. Mm-hmm. And at this point, which is super popular and taking over um, in academia and has been there for a long time. So when a young woman goes off to college and starts, you know, you know, bemoaning the patriarchy and say, I'm never going to read anything by Shakespeare anymore or anything written with a man in the center. She has to repent of that the same way a young man has to repent of, of, of being unwilling to engage with a book because it's about a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that the continuing to challenge that without shaming is important, but also give him a pass in the sense of like, Hey, you're going to still be reading books in 10 years. Maybe just let the guy figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, but I think that's a big case for why we should teach Jane Austen in high school. Um, and, and with a good teacher who knows how to teach it. Sean, do you want to add anything to this? The one thing I just want to say is that the, the other part of it is like learning to read something you don't like and yet read it well is like important. Yeah. And I know that's kind of what part of what you're saying, but even just <laughs> as a skill of like pushing through the moments that are not as appealing to you is and it's it's more than it's like different than eating your vegetables. It's just you're developing if you're gonna develop totally the skill of reading. Just, yeah. Being able to identify what makes something good that you don't like, good and bad, that you don't like, and being able to differentiate between your own taste and the quality of the thing itself 
is an essential part of being a good reader. And then being able to determine whether or not what you'd like is worth liking. It goes, it's like the other part of it too. Yeah. Um, which, and I know that's tied to what you're saying, Heidi. I just wanted to, to add that. Well, also that exercise of trying to articulate or being made to articulate the reasons why the objective reasons why you dislike a thing uh, can often bring you around to actually liking it. When you, when you finally look closely enough uh, at, at what's going on, uh, it's funny how often that happens. Uh, but no, I think, I think what Heidi's saying is, is absolutely right. Uh, the, the divine image uh, in mankind is male and female, right? Neither, neither male nor female encapsulates it entirely. Uh, and so you have to, right? Heroines matter uh, because they are part of that divine image and heroes matter because they're part of that divine image and you can't have the entirety of it without both. Uh, and if you, if you are a man, uh, God willing, uh, you'll have to do things like, well, you, you will get to do things like marry a woman, uh, God forbid, raise a woman. And, uh, the, uh, literature about women is going to be <laughs> really helpful, uh, and being able to, uh, to enjoy and have affection for uh, those uh, those women, those literary women, and their insights and uh, their workings, which are foreign to us, uh, is is also really valuable. That you is, can't. Well, so which is why you can't say that uh, that you only like books about yourself because right? that's narcissism. <laughs> True. This is related to my pet theory that uh, one of the reasons that self help books and books like type typology type but not typology is the wrong word books that are like help typing people and then helping you figure out the category yeah, and yeah. all that and i'm not even talking about the enneagram here but like the typical like relationship self-help book or like just general self-help is popular because people don't actually read real other books like <laughs> once you stop once our culture stops reading fiction all of a sudden weird there's this big trajectory of self-help books that are basically an essay turned into a book, right? Like it could yeah. have been an essay or someone wrote an essay and then a publisher said, Hey, you should publish that as a book because you have a big following and we can sell stuff. Well, um, and if it's, we just and it's read a book, fiction, it would be okay. Man, that's good. And it's a book that's unambiguously about you without the mediating yeah, true, fictional true. character. It's like, in the you want, requiring any humility it, at it's, all. <laughs> it's to you, right? And you can solve every problem that you have by doing the steps that this other person is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, but... And maybe as a kind of closing confessional, uh, though, by the time I was entering college, Persuasion was already my favorite Jane Austen novel. <laughs> but, uh, oh, but I have, I love that. I have had lots of bad takes on a lot of great books, uh, and had chances over the years as a teacher and as a, a continual reader, uh, to repent of those, uh, bad opinions. Uh, and, and the important thing, especially when we're talking about the great works, the classic works, uh, is, um, you know, the, what the tour guide at the Louvre told the grumpy American woman, madam, the art is not on trial. You are, <laughs> we, we have to come back and be retried and re, uh, reworked and reshaped and rechallenged by these works until we you know, get what they're doing. Mm.
Right. Yeah, well I said. also just as a final thing to say, because I, I know what it's like to be a mom, just, you know, just let him keep living. <laughs> like, and so much of, uh, in, in our school years, so much of how we evaluate a book tends to be about how it's taught mm-hmm. to us yeah. and how it's presented to us. And, um, and so there were, I think I said this, even something similar when we were reading As I Lay Dying earlier last year. And I said, I hated this book when I read it because I was, I read it when I was way too young and it wasn't well taught and it's a hard book. And so sometimes, you know, in revisiting it as an adult, I'm like, oh, this is a really, really great book. I just missed it the first time. And part of that wasn't my fault. So I think that we just have to have so much grace that um, in spite of what we're saying, his response to persuasion is not a reflection of who he is as a person. And so um, <laughs> that's not what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and in the meantime, just give him some Patrick O'Brien. The work it's <laughs> just in between, in between the ones he doesn't like. So I've been thinking about this kind of concept a lot, the more that's like the longer I've owned the, sh- the bookstore, because like I'm surrounded by books all the time. The new head of, um, Barnes and Noble has been writing, oh. has been having these amazing conversations with different writers and stuff about yeah. why he helped Barnes and Noble bounce back. And one of the things he talked about is that it's it matters to be surrounded by books like that. That really matters. They're like they're, on the one hand they're an artifact, but there's also something like ephemeral about it. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about caring what it means to like care about books and for books. And I and I've been thinking about how. The books, like, I don't love every book that I have in the shop, but I care about every book that's in the shop. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that's true of us, everybody as readers. You don't have to love every book you read, but you have to care about every book you read. Another way, if, if, if you need to bleep out what I'm going to say or like tell your seven year old to have earmuffs, <laughs> I'm going to put it this way and hopefully people won't get offended. You don't have to love every book that you read, but you have to give a crap about every book you read. <laughs> Like even if you think a book is bad, you have to think it's bad because you care about it. Like you have to, you, you have to come to the conclusion for a reason that it's bad. And and that might be easier for some books than others. Um, And so there's a lot of books that, you know, that I think are really important that I don't like. And I also love a lot of books that I don't think are that important. But if you care about all books enough to go through the process of figuring out why you love or hate something, uh, then I then I think that you, that's the kind of reading experience that we want our kids to have. So like he d- is he doesn't have to love persuasion, but he has to care about it. That's what I that that would be what I'd say. Do you guys want to add anything else, or should we go to the next question? No, I just want to I give you three cheers for that comment. I, don't I just mean can't to wait the last word. I can't wait till close readers put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> oh yeah, I should have thought about that. <laughs> um, okay, let's um, let's do this one. We don't. Are you? How are you guys on time? I got all the time in the world. Don't tell my wife I said that. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you probably shouldn't have said that. Um, don't. Uh, someone put that on a T-shirt. I got all the time in the world. Don't tell my wife don't I said that. Wife, Sean Johnson. Um, okay, well, let's do a let's do a, a lighter, quicker one here. That I know. Okay, there's one here that's like right up Heidi's alley. Oh, where did it go? Where did it go? Um, it's about. Okay, here we go. Sarah. Sarah asks. Uh, what wine and cheese pairing would you recommend for either a vacation in Lyme with your ex or a trip to Bath with your embarrassing family? Heidi Jackson responded, I don't know about a pairing, but I'd just go for large quantities of both. 
So Heidi, <laughs> Heidi White, Sarah Woodwick wants to know what wine cheese pairing would you recommend for either a vacation in Lyme with your ex or a trip to Bath with your embarrassing family? This is such a Heidi, like so up your alley. Question. It might as well be me recommending we do a draft. Right. <laughs> or a list. It so <laughs> is. In Lyme, you got to have something sparkling, right? Like a summer afternoon wine. Like it's an outside place um, or maybe a maybe a crisp dry rosé but i think i mean i I'm, I'm just for champagne anytime right keep keep the so, conversation light and bubbly with the ex yeah, right that's right <laughs> got to work I, through some stuff that's what i say yeah and champagne goes straight to your head every single time <laughs> so it's like to be relied upon in an <laughs> afternoon especially like, when you're on the coast yeah, I don't yes. actually. I don't know if that's true. I just and feels like... you also with champagne. It also it also goes away real quick, so you can go you know straight back to retire and take a. Yeah, it does fortify you while you're yeah. taking a turn around the room and around so the. What about a trip to bath and, with your embarrassing family? Hmm. Um, I I mean I'm gonna say in bath with your embarrassing family you might. Let's see what has the highest alcohol content, right? Um, with bath, you're going to want like a stiff Bordeaux, like a nice, strong. It's got to have a lot of body to it. Um, Someone cast it across like the... Really across cool. the. Yep. Or you want your strong cheese. Maybe in bath, you're going to go for a after dinner. You want like a really great Stilton or blue cheese. Lots Something of marbling. Stinky. Yeah, with uh, uh, with like a really sweet like Madeira port, maybe something that your like, embarrassing yeah. family is not going to really understand why it's so good. Yeah, and yeah, they're just exactly. going to, yeah, oh, and something yeah. classy, right? Like you, like you need. So what um, you're saying is something that's going to help you feel better, better about yourself than your than the family. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I think so. I think that's good. <laughs> and hold on, I didn't recommend the cheese and lime. I think like. Water crackers with like an aged manchego, maybe. I'm not sure. And some spot. Yeah. And there, and there, aren't sparkly. they at war with France and Spain? Manchegos. And I did recommend a Madeira that's, port too. But yeah. maybe that's maybe oh, that, are you maybe kidding? your naval English boyfriend of, is gonna bring you on. back some. Oh, right? you, you think you're just going to you're yeah. just gonna sit you're gonna go to Lyme and sit on a wall and drink a bit and drink bitter? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, what? you're drinking a good champagne, you're having some crackers, <laughs> some dry, and something packable for your cheese. Yeah. So yeah, that's you true. also want a hard cheese with your champagne. See, Sean, I was thinking I was else? thinking the exact opposite. Right. Uh, I, I thought this might be personality, right? Here. Well, maybe, right? but I'm trying to think about situation too. Like you, uh, I'm thinking lime with your ex. Uh, you want something? You want to be serious, so you drink a claret. Uh, okay. okay, and and maybe this is where you have a Stilton uh, because one, you want something fatty and proteiny in your system while you're drinking wine around your ex because you want to be on your game. Yeah, you can't get sloppy. It's true. That's yeah. true. And then in line, or point then, with your ex. Yeah. <laughs> and then in bath, uh, champagne, no cheese, so that you get that buzz real quick and you don't have to pay attention to what your stupid family's doing. Okay. Let what, the reader decide. What <laughs> wine is Anne? Oh. Alternatively, or uh, along with that, what wine is Elizabeth Bennett? Oh. What wine is Emma? Oh, Ben Elizabeth Bennett's like a sharp Pinot, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> young. I, yeah. yeah, from the Valley, Sean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no time on the lees. Uh, or maybe like a dolcetto, <laughs> which means little sweet one, but it's not a sweet wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Anne is probably Anne is an Amarone or something. I bet Anne's an Amarone. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. What a little extra time drying in the sun and uh, <laughs> so straight up Josh Gibbs wine right there. That's worth it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's Emma? Oh, she's bitter. <laughs> you don't think so? Yeah. Well, what do you mean by bitter? I don't like like, like earthy. Like like she's like her her what your her wine oh, tastes like in the know. barnyard like it's a no she's like sharp. it's a yeah like a Sauvignon yeah. Blanc uh huh <laughs> like so like a white wine she's a she's a white wine oh yeah Emma's yeah. a white wine for sure yeah for yeah, sure one hundred percent yeah what about Sancerre yeah sure oh okay take that yeah yeah all right I need to read uh, knowing my love of Sancerre I need to read Emma again. <laughs> I was thinking about doing that this year anyway, possibly in uh, preparation for a future close reads read. Okay, um, Jennifer says that Karen Swallow Pryor, Doctor Pryor, chose the virtue of patience for persuasion in on reading well. Tim said in a talk that Jane Austen elevates constancy as a virtue in her novels, which I can definitely see in persuasion. So pick a side, Tim or Dr. Pryor, or a third option, which virtue do you think is at the heart of the novel or at the heart of each character? We did talk about a lot about like duty and desire and things like that. We talked about the notion of virtues, but I like the, I, I like kind of being forced to, to, to contemplate whether there's a particular virtue that it seems like Austin is elevating here. Heidi, what do you think? Do you want to pick a side between Tim and Karen? Uh, no, I don't want to pick a side. I think that's exactly right. I think both of them are right. That is yeah, the virtue. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think the they're same the same thing, virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they're the same virtue. Um, and it's also a virtue that Wentworth has. Mm-hmm. You know, in spite of their differences in personality, in spite of what they each bring to the relationship to harmonize with the other, they both they both display this virtue and it's that that brings them back together again, which, so the whole novel elevates the virtue of constancy, the virtue yeah. of patience. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to do, just do a couple more here. Um, let's see. There's so many good ones here still. Uh, some of them are a little long. Um, let's do here. Here, Heidi, here's a, a quick one for you. Um, how or why do none of the Musgroves or Crofts seem to notice the awkwardness and tension between Anne and Frederick? I capital L love this book, but it bothers me that no one suspects any history at all or seems to speculate on their fitness as a couple. Is it just that it's necessary for the plot? I can understand that the Musgroves are too consumed with their own interest, but it seems strange for uh, no one else to notice and wonder. Do you have any quick thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, part of that is because Anne is so adept at hiding her feelings and that, um, Wentworth and so overlooked, right? By everybody. Um, and because Wentworth is so determined not to show that um, and to show preference for other young women. Also, I think it speaks to the conventions of the time that Anne is considered a spinster. And so all of the other young women in that are 19, 20, 21 are pushed at Wentworth without even considering the person who's his actual age um, <laughs> or closer to it. And also, I think the Musgraves are, Musgraves are just kind of self-centered people. They're good people, but they're not, they don't think of others. Sean, anything else? No, well said. Okay, Sean, then I'm going to ask you this one. This is from um, Alicia. Uh, is there any other author with more fan fiction than Jane Austen? Uh, if so, why is that out of copyright and or many characters that we have slight slight knowledge but could go in any direction that was a question mark so is it because it's out of copyright but also there are many characters who have we have slight knowledge of but could go in any direction 
it is true that there is a oh. lot of fan fiction. What are your thoughts yeah. on Austin, uh, the uh, the world of Austin fan fiction, Sean? You have one and a half minutes. Oh. Well, uh, the I I weirdly made the made the attempt to read a couple of these kinds of things. In my opinion, all but one of them are hot garbage. <laughs> but I think it's a combination of how early her works entered the public domain and how well she draws these characters, uh, even minor characters. Uh, and so I think there is... Yeah, there's a lot of implication available. There's, there's a lot there. I think also because she is a much rarer thing, literarily speaking, this uh, great female novelist uh, writing entirely about or primarily about uh, female heroines uh, and the majority of the people writing this fan fiction are women. I think uh, uh, I think it's maybe just easier to enter into. They're not as uh, there's less interest in writing H.G. Wells fan fiction. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the H.G. The Wells one, is basically already fan fiction. So yeah, well, that's right. Uh, yeah, the one, the one fan fiction e, uh, entry that I, that I'm willing to countenance, yeah, is, uh, PD James's Death Comes to Pemberley. Uh, oh, yeah. And I will, I will give a, a slight head nod or a almost the tip of the cap, like an inclination of the cap to, uh, the concept of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Not the execution, <laughs> but the concept is, uh, there's something there. I uh, totally the, agree with that. I was yeah. so excited when that book came out. I was like, yeah. this is brilliant. And there is a lot that's very brilliant about it, but I agree. It just, it failed, but it was such a good idea. Yeah. If it could have been 50 pages long instead of the the length of Pride and Prejudice, it would have been great. Uh, the, an, an actual fight between Elizabeth and Lady Catherine is worth the price of admission. But uh, you're going to have to slog through a lot of garbage to get there. So a book that came out last year, I think 2022, it's called The Murder of Mr. Wickham. And it's it's pretty good. It's pretty fun. It's uh, like there's a summer party house, house party that turns into a thrilling whodunit when Mr. Wickham one of literature's most notorious rakes finally gets what's coming to him. Sure. In this yeah, they're all wish imagined. fulfillment. That's what it is. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I think Haley yeah. Croft read that. So Haley will have to yeah, let us know in the did. comments whether yeah. it's good. I've I've read parts of it, like as you the hundreds of books, and I kind of enjoyed it. And I probably will go back and, and read it again. <laughs> okay, here's a question from Emily. Heidi, I want you to um I want to focus in on you for this one just because of time, Sean. Um, not because I don't Thank think you. you have anything that would be interesting to say. Um okay, Heidi. Emily asks, have we judged Lady Russell rightly? And two, can we believe Anne? So she expands. The biggest part Lady Russell plays, in my opinion, is that of the only character who consistently values Anne as she ought to. She truly sees the worth and goodness of Anne, respects her, and loves her. Without her, we have no real proof that Anne's goodness goes beyond a mere sense of duty. Through her eyes, we see her wisdom, her tenacity at always doing the right thing, and with fervor and her likeness to her mother. Her persuasion in years past was not merely because of lack of fortune and standing, but out of a real love for and even a sense of duty to not only Anne, but her mother. If I thought my goddaughter, the daughter of a beloved and dead friend, was entering into a marriage that could cause her regret for whatever reason, I would have a hard time trying not not trying to persuade her with whatever means necessary. I think of Mrs. Price, who clearly married foolishly and was coarse and worn out by her marriage and was unable to manage her household in the way which she may have been brought up. 
This causes me to wonder if I believe Anne when she says, given similar circumstances, that she would not give such advice. Would she really not? Consider the relationship she had with Lady Russell. If Anne had been solicited for such advice by Louise Musgrove, for example, then perhaps she could have refrained. But to someone so very near and dear to her as Anne was to Lady Russell. That's a question. So, but what about with someone like that? In today's world, perhaps, although I'm unconvinced. So go ahead. There's a little bit more, but go ahead. So I think that the novel might agree with some of that, that um, because Anne says at the end that she thinks she did the right thing by listening to Lady Russell. And she, she says a couple of those same things. Um, I do not believe that we are meant to question Anne's judgment hardly ever in this book. Um I, I think the novel tells us to believe Anne and we're long, long before the convention of not being able to believe the main character of a novel, even in a literary sense. And so I think that we are, um, Anne is held up as an ideal type, but also one on a trajectory of growth within the novel. Um, but that trajectory of growth is not towards duty. It's towards happiness. And she already is dutiful. She already has good judgment and prudence and sees things for what they are. And um, so I don't think we're meant to question Anne's prudence um, and her wisdom. But I think some of what you're saying is what Lady Russell's motives are, but we're also given a Lady Russell who, even within the world of the novel, is very concerned with the protection of property and status uh, and and makes that a major part of every decision that she makes and is held up by Austen within the novel as being too consumed with that. And that Anne at the end makes a choice that rejects the folly of that while still honoring Lady Russell and respecting her. And so I don't think we can trust Lady Russell's judgment over Anne's about herself. Okay, Sean, I'll give you a second if you want to add or or, or disagree. I I don't I don't really. I think uh that's right that especially given the the time that this novel is written in uh we're meant to we're meant to believe the main character in a, in most senses. Um, I think again, that it's important to distinguish the right reasons for an act and the outcome of that act, uh, as we weigh the, the rightness or wrongness of, of a choice that's made from an ethical standpoint, uh, right, evaluating it on, whatever uh, duty the choice is being made out of, I think is more important than evaluating it based on its outcome. Uh, though both are uh, have to be taken into consideration. Okay. Two more questions here before we wrap up. Is that all right? You guys good with that? Let's do it. Okay. S asks, even though no verbal proposal or commitment has been made, Wentworth believed he had an implied duty to marry Louisa had she not married Benwick. In contrast to this, Anne made a firm commitment to Wentworth but this, throughout seven or eight years, was unacknowledged as being duty-binding. Is this early 19th century cultural gender standards? On the one hand, is Wentworth's implied commitment, on the other, um, a previous firm commitment from Anne abandoned, never acknowledged as dishonorable. In the end, in the end, Anne reckoned she was dutiful, did the right thing. So what do you think of the contrast between these 
these actions. One of them is one of these duties is implied, the other explicit. What's the moral difference? Is this noted in the story by either character or by the narrator herself? Heidi, thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, those uh, expectations were put in place to protect the women from being taken advantage of by men. Um, so it was uh, the a woman always had the freedom to break off an engagement, um, especially if her family, especially if her family was leading her to do so because her primary uh, duty uh, is to be is to her father and to her family until she is married and then it is to her husband. Um, but uh, it was uh, the Wentworth was responsible for his actions uh, to Louisa because he had overtly favored her and pursued her. And so in that sense, uh, in order to protect her, he would have been duty bound and honor bound uh, if she had an expectation of marriage to fulfill that for her sake. That's why that was there. Okay, let's do this one last. Um, and I'm sorry if we didn't get to your questions because there's still great questions out there that um, that would make for a really fun conversation. Now I'm having second thought. I, I, there's so many good ones. Um, all right, here's one from Natalie. Let's do this. Reading Persuasion this time around, I was struck by the moments when Anne clearly begins to hope that Wentworth might come to love her again. I'm curious what we are supposed to think about this. Obviously, Anne is a virtuous and sympathetic character, so very few of her actions and opinions are questionable. Yet when I think of her hoping for a second proposal from Wentworth, I wonder if she's going too far. I guess I want to know if we think Anne realizes how badly she broke his heart. And if so, is she too eager in seeing the small kindnesses and attentions on his part as a sign of returning affection? Sean? No. And this has been a Q&A episode. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, it's possible that she does not entirely grasp the the degree to which he was hurt by her uh, initially. But I think she's saying things to herself by the middle of the novel, at least, uh, that demonstrate she gets it. Like she she understands. She even tells herself he will. There will never be a second chance with this guy because I I blew it, it and I really yeah. and I really hurt him. Yeah. Uh, but when there are uh, you know, objective signs of uh, warmth or thawing or care or just notice on his part, I don't think that so, uh, it's unreasonable for her to... So related to that, there is a question in here about whether or not we see earlier Wentworth's before the love letter. Do we get enough clues before that that he's into her uh, and cares for her? Heidi, you think yes, there are? You're not... So in that that chapter that I said is such a great chapter, right? I think it's chapter eight or chapter nine when they're at the theater and then they have this coded conversation. Oh yeah. That's when she gets hope. And that's when he is, he is according to the rules of the time, right? Because we're talking about mystery inventors. He can't come out and say it, but the fact, the, the words are so explicitly connected to his experience with her that she's not reading too much into it to think he's telling me he loves me again. Like he's telling me this, that he's giving me insight into his heart by his comparison or his words that he's talking about, yeah. um, which uh, about um, Benwick and Louisa. And he's also, that also ties back into the last question, which goes to the honorability of a man to not pursue a woman uh, 
until he really means something. People were not, this isn't like the days of like dating for three years. Like you didn't pursue a woman and the way that he is talking to Anne, unless you had intentions towards her, everything else was just dinner party conversations and mild flirting, maybe. Right. So by the time there was lots of dancing, that's how you figure it out. Yes. And very, I mean, we do Jane Austen dancing at our school balls every year. We have someone come in and teach our our students the same dances that they did. And it's not the kind of- And all those kids are getting married now. Like that, that (laughs) is not- There's no touching, right? Other than like the hands, right? That's right. Maybe your shoulders brushed. Yes, yes. Um, And so, and even in that case, if a man engages a woman for more than two dances in the evening, that is a clear indication of his intentions towards her. So Anne isn't reading too much into it. She's not going overboard. Uh, Everything that she's saying is has propriety and decorum and a cultural context to it, as well as the fact that Wentworth is very meaningful speaker and is probably very ardent in his ways looking at her and all that kind of thing which is alluded to in that chapter as well john heidi just talked about the idea that they're they begin to have these coded messages and of course that goes back to the anna karenin i think that got up brought up last week's question so here's my question for you as we leave has there ever been a great love story that didn't begin with coded messages Has there ever been like a great that. love story that didn't begin with coded messages? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's no. possible. Like, yeah, the, I, like lingering just, glances across the room, right? Like the, with stuff. the possible exception stuff. of the very first one. Uh, all right, where Adam wakes up and sees Eve for the first time and starts spitting rhymes right, right away. Right? <laughs> <laughs> He's spouting poetry immediately. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's it's uh, not very. Not very coded. Maybe even that is a coded message. Bone on my bone, flesh on my flesh. But I think he's being literal. Like, oh, yeah, I think you just came out of my side. Uh, So maybe with the exception of that. uh, Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of our Q&A episode, the end of our conversation of persuasion. Um, This has been fun. It's been really good to reread this book and uh, to reread it with two people who uh, really, really love it. So... Uh, up next, we have our conversation um, on the Netanyahu's Joshua Cohen's book. Uh, Tim will be back for that. So next episode, we will be discussing uh, the first four chapters of the Netanyahu's. Uh, the schedule yes. is is over on the Substack, and also I did post it and pin it to the Facebook page if you are over on Facebook. Uh, we are about to begin our uh, subscriber exclusive series on the Ransom Trilogy, beginning with Out of the Silent Planet. And so for the first episode of that, we are going to be uh, discussing chapters one through seven of Out of the Silent Planet. Um, speaking of which, we probably should talk about some recording schedules now that we're uh, behind on, on things. Uh, so, so we've got some some reading and some episodes to record. Um, so, yeah, we'll have Tim back on Out of the uh, on the Net and Yahoos. And Sean, you're planning on doing Out of the Silent Planet, or 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 you're not? If I if I don't, it will kill me. Okay, great. So so then you are okay. Yeah. But I am um, still doing the big uh, Hulk Hogan, Mr. T, uh, like tag team handoff to Tim here. Oh, this is that's, mm-hmm. this is that moment right now for for the Netanyahu's. Yeah, I'm for on the, the Netanyahu's show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which so people, I'm in other so words, people glad that I don't pay money to hear you talk for the next. Yeah, which the don't, don't put it that way. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> glad are because subscribing now. I think that I think that I will embarrass myself uh, if I had to confess on the air how much I enjoyed the Netanyahu. <laughs> like, it goes really badly. I just want David to catch all of that fire 
Uh, and uh, oh, I'm so you saying that though is does make me ready. happy. Oh man, I just yeah, I I laughed aloud, I cried. I've only read the was, first paragraph. That's my confession, and it was great. It's actually a really great first paragraph. Yeah, but yeah. I can see I can see a lot of things coming from it. It's a little bit scandalous. I think it's going to be really fun. I can't wait. Sean, you know the scene, right? The funny, oh, like yeah. one of the. Okay, oh, all right. Yeah, you felt like that was funny too. Oh man, absolutely. Okay, okay. It was good. worth the whole. It was <laughs> the whole buildup. Okay, it's worth the whole thing. All right. Cool. Well, I know Tim is reading it now, so I'm excited to hear what he says. And and of course, we just read My Name is Asher Lev, and there was a lot of discussion about Jewish culture and history yeah. and tradition. And so that's going to come up again in this book. And I think that the two will talk in converse. We'll talk. Oh, my. I just said, well, I just did one of the, my least favorite. Conversate and talking together. Oh, my gosh. I can't stand when people put in posters. Sean Johnson and David Kern in conversation at a, a on seven o'clock. On, yeah, drives me nuts. And I just did it. <laughs> Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this conversation. We'll be back uh, be back soon. Lots of content for you. Uh, don't forget that if you want to subscribe and get access to the Ransom Trilogy conversations and hear Sean some more, you can go to closereads.substack.com and click that subscribe button. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks so much for Heidi White and for Sean Johnson. I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>